Um, turn with me to Romans 14. Romans 14 is just kind of a home base for us tonight. As I've said numbers of times, generally my practice is to preach um, expositionally straight through a text. We are preaching expositionally, but it's just straight through a topic because this particular topic, particularly in the area of divorce and remarriage, there is no one text that gives us the full picture. And so we have to kind of piece it together. But Romans 14 will just be kind of our our launching point. Later on, we'll be in Deuteronomy and then back in Romans as well. I will say this, if this is the first message in this series you're listening to, uh, it might be a little tough. Uh, this is our last one. And so uh, I'm going to suggest that you go back to the beginning because much of what I'm talking about tonight presupposes what I've taught in the previous 12 messages. So I would encourage you to uh, go back to that. So if this is your first one and it feels a little murky, that's okay. That's uh, by design. So we've had a, a journey together, first through the very clear waters of the theology of marriage and then the more murky waters of divorce and remarriage. And In my first message, I told you about a fellow pastor, a friend of mine. I had a conversation with him. He's a very intelligent man, holds a doctorate. He's highly skilled in the exegesis of Scripture. And I thought I would get a little insight from him. So I said, what's your opinion on the Bible's teaching on divorce and remarriage? And he had a one-word answer. He said, muddy, that it's just difficult. And so, as I've said numerous times, you can't form an accurate assessment of what Scripture says concerning marriage and, or concerning divorce and remarriage in particular based on drawing conclusions from one text only. You can't do it. And there's an overwhelming temptation to take your presuppositions, to take your personal convictions, even your feelings about the topic, and take that to the text of Scripture. It's an emotional issue, and, and I think one of the easiest ones to approach with a preconceived concrete conviction already in the famous Sherlock Holmes story a scandal in Bohemia Sherlock Holmes says memorably quote it is a capital mistake to theorize in advance of the facts insensibly one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts that's a pretty good rule of bible study method as well So I want to give some exhortation up front at this point. The issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage is not a salvation issue. It's not even close to it. And so if you're prone to be upset or even angry with your brothers and sisters in Christ who differ with you on this, that's a heart issue to deal with. And I want to actually start there because much of this arena deals with matters of the conscience. And so I want to just, as a a launching point, look at Romans 14. I just want to read the first six verses to you as a reminder to us about what we do with matters of the conscience. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who honors the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. That's just a good reminder for us that this is the proper attitude to have on issues that are more a matter of the conscience. 
Now, we've outlined what the non-negotiables are, and we won't, out, we won't repeat those, but we are to remember that every single situation concerning marriage, divorce, and remarriage, particularly divorce and remarriage, every single situation is different, and discernment and grace is paramount in those situations. So tonight, I want to wrap up the topic of remarriage. I know we haven't really delved very deeply into remarriage as much as I would like. Um, I have some rules that I'm going by for my doctoral project. I'm only supposed to preach up to 12 messages. This is number 13, so I'm pushing the envelope. And we're doing a Q&A next week, which doesn't count. So that's, uh, that's the way I kind of got around that a little bit. But before we really get into tonight's thoughts it really weighed on me that I feel like this is my last opportunity in this series to appeal to all of us concerning the sanctity of marriage and the other seriousness of divorce. This is my last shot, and so I want to start there. First of all, marriage. Everyone who's married has disagreements. We have challenges. Some couples disagree quietly. Others squabble and even fight on a regular basis. But this can all happen within the boundaries of of safety, the, the safety net of the marriage vows that Ultimately, the husband is, maybe more slowly than we would like, but he is working toward loving his wife as Christ loves the church. And ultimately, the wife is working toward respecting her husband and loving him as commanded in Titus 2. That sanctification process may be fast for some. It may be slow for others. It may be almost imperceptibly slow in the lives of others. But that doesn't mean that those boundaries aren't still there. There are boundaries that are not violated. The marriage is still honored. God is honored by that. What, what do you call a good marriage? Well, at the bottom line, you would call a good marriage one that still exists. At the top of that, you would call a good marriage one which sanctification is a continuing process, and, and you can see this. And the major, major factor which keeps this covenant intact is, by the way, the willingness to forgive one another. That that's, that's our foundation that the very worst things possible can be forgiven. Physical adultery can be forgiven. Emotional adultery, having a secret girlfriend or a secret boyfriend who's, who's an emotional bond to you, that can be forgiven. Abusive actions by either spouse can be forgiven. If I could put it this way, a spouse is never limited in Scripture as to how much forgiveness they can they can extend. You can extend all the forgiveness that Christ has extended to you. You're never limited. More often than not, phrases like I've had enough or I'm finished or you're utterly evil or you're the worst thing that's ever happened to me, that simply indicates that you decided you're finished forgiving. And I'm thankful that Christ doesn't say that with me. That, you know, Steve Swartz, you've been on this earth for 50 years now and there's certain things you still haven't learned. I'm finished with you. I'm so thankful he doesn't do that. He continues to forgive. But when these boundaries start being violated, when forgiveness is no longer extended, when you begin to rationalize sinful behavior, especially over a long period of time, this downward spiral of destruction begins. When, when verbal assaults happen on a regular basis and they go, they're unrepentant, when there's a flat-out refusal to communicate, when the appeal of another woman or another man begins to be a viable option in the marriage when you start judging your life and your marriage by worldly standards like I have my rights, I have a right to be happy, I want to move on with my life, I don't feel like loving her anymore, he doesn't make me happy, she doesn't treat me the way I deserve. When all of those things start being factors in your mind, now the spiral of disobedience just continues such that for women, Proverbs 14.1 comes into play that the foolish woman tears her house down with her own hands, more often than not with her own mouth, And for a man, 
Verse 3 of Proverbs 14, the foolish man acts in a way that brings destruction to his life, a rod for his back. And they pay the price and consequences either in or after the marriage. But I would say this, many, many, many faithful believers in Christ have endured a difficult, almost impossible marriage for the sake of Christ. That's always the first line of defense and that's always an honorable thing to do. That's always pleasing to the Lord. That's always an option. I want to just address divorce for a moment. Yes, Scripture allows for divorce as a mercy on some and as a discipline or judgment on others. And honestly, if I were arguing with the Bible, I would argue against that. I would rather, because it's so much easier just to say that no divorce ever for any reason. That's, that's the easy track to take, but that's not Scripture's track. Scripture's track is that it is rare, but it can be a mercy but it's not a weapon. It's not a manipulative technique to, to be used to get your way. It's the option taken when the one flesh aspect of the marriage has been seemingly irreparably shattered, when adultery continues and continues and continues and is unrepentant with a hard heart or when unrepentant abandonment with a hard heart continues and continues, either physical abandonment or as we talked about what we call constructive desertion where abandonment happens right there under the same roof. When that's so obviously winning the day for a long, long period of time and eventually all hope is lost, then that's an option. On occasion, divorce is better than a marriage in which one or both spouses have completely hardened their hearts towards one another, completely refusing to pursue the other, completely refusing to pursue the marriage. But I want to be clear, divorce is among the most devastating human events anybody can experience. And it always hurts multiple people. It always does. This is why Jesus said that a man who marries a, a, a divorced woman commits adultery. And we'll talk about this in a minute, but he's, he's exaggerating. He's saying everybody gets hurt. Everybody gets dirty with this. And countless studies have, be done, have been done on the impact of divorce on children, and the results are catastrophic. I'll leave that to you to study that on your own, but I've seen it and I've experienced it. They're catastrophic. They change, that divorce changes children for a lifetime. Changes the way they view life, the way they view marriage. Statistically, couples who reach the brink of divorce and then stop the process, they change their minds. More often than not, the reason that they do this, they don't do it for their own sake. They do it for the sake of their children. And these are studies with unbelievers who can say, we've got to stop. We've got to get our our lives together, our marriage together here because we're about to devastate our children. And they get it together for the sake of the kids. Unbelievers can do that. And divorce, of course, brings such shame on the name of Christ. In Titus 2, beginning in verse 4, it tells young married women how they're to behave themselves. And it gives the reason that the word of God may not be reviled, literally blasphemed. What does this mean? Look, unbelievers have a general picture of what Christians claim. Uh, Many unbelievers have read the Bible. They know that husbands are supposed to love their wives. They know that wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. And they may not agree with any of it. But they've read it. And they know what our standards are. And so when a couple in which one or both claim to know Christ ends their marriage and divorce and the word of God is slammed. Our faith is slammed as being utterly useless. It's a faith that can't produce any changes in anybody's life. And it denigrates the word of God 
Which means, by the way, that then Jesus just isn't all that we claim he is. Now, on the flip side of that coin, divorce has also become a great arena of haughtiness and pride in the church. And because of the seriousness of divorce, it has become culturally the unforgivable sin that the cross of Christ is somehow insufficient to cover that sin. It can cover all my sins, it just can't cover yours. Listen, when I'm doing counseling, I'm the very closest to a horrible marital situation, but even then, I don't even get 10% of the information I need to make an accurate assessment. There's always hidden sins, there are always lies, there's always secrets, which I beg the Lord to expose. And so if you're observing from the outside and you, you see something's not quite right, maybe you have 1% of the information that you need to make an accurate assessment. And so that begs the question, then should I even be making an assessment? What do we do? Well, we help one another. We exhort one another. We believe the best. We hope all things. We pray, we pray, we pray. But when a believer has gone through the, the horrific experience of divorce, we, we never say that that is somehow a sin that God can't forgive or that we're going to treat it as unforgivable. Yes, the Bible allows for divorce in certain very, very rare circumstances. But for me personally, in whatever counseling I'm doing, I'm dragging my feet. I'm resisting that option at every turn because God is infinitely more honored in healing a seemingly hopeless marriage. And yes, God can heal the lives of those broken by divorce, but how much more honor would he receive when two people who by all rights should have been divorced are able to reconcile and to demonstrate the graciousness of God? God is infinitely more honored when a believing spouse chooses to endure hardship and pain and and takes to heart Psalm 27, 14, to wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I felt like I wanted to just address some of those issues before we really delved into tonight's topic. So let's finish this up. I have a very simple plan. First one is I want to recap remarriage in in Scripture and offer a couple of applicational uh, conclusions. I want to recap remarriage because it's it's not an easy issue. And the second part of our plan tonight is I want to deal with a very real situation that happens in the church, and that is answering the question, who is an adulterer? And more importantly, more specifically rather, can a person who's committed adultery remarry? Can that happen? Now, this may couple of, uh, answer actually a couple of questions which have already been submitted for the Q&A next week. But first, I want to recap remarriage in Scripture with a couple of applicational conclusions to, to remind ourselves how to respond to this situation. Now, there are some who take a no-divorce position, which by default creates a no-remarriage position. Obviously, if you don't believe in divorce, then you don't believe in remarriage. That's your right. Others, and I didn't address this position in detail last time, they take a position that says divorce in certain circumstances, but no remarriage ever. So tonight, I'm not going to make a big distinction between the varieties of allowable remarriage positions. I just want to establish, hopefully in fairly clear terms, some facts in Scripture and a couple of facts from history concerning remarriage, just so we can understand what Scripture says about it. Now, I will say this at the outset. Absolutely, a remarriage can be verifiably sinful. It can be an absolute rebellion against God a man leaving his spouse in order to remarry, in order to go to his mistress. Obviously, that is verifiably sinful. But also, he's acting like an unbeliever 
and then our place is to treat him as an unbeliever. The remarriage is really the least of his concerns. The eternal state of his soul is the greater concern that we ought to have for him. So let me just go through eight facts about remarriage, and and these aren't in any particular order of importance, but I want to just show you that like divorce, these are pieces of the pie that have to be kind of put together into one picture. Uh, The first fact about remarriage is to remind us that divorce replaced the death penalty with the assumption of remarriage. Divorce replaced the death penalty with the assumption of remarriage, and this is in the law of Moses. We talked at length about divorce being a merciful option as opposed to the death penalty. You have Deuteronomy 22, the death penalty, and just two chapters later, Deuteronomy 24, divorce as a, as a more viable and more merciful option. Divorce is never in Scripture commanded. It is allowed for. There is an, there is an allowance for it. In John chapter 8, Jesus showed mercy to an adulterer and commanded repentance rather than calling for her death. Our friend John MacArthur, he reminds us that divorce essentially replaced the law of the death penalty for an adulterer. He said, if God permitted divorce rather than death as a merciful concession to man's sinfulness, why would he not also permit remarriage since remarriage would be perfectly allowable under the original law of death for the adulterer? After all, the purpose of divorce was to show mercy to the guilty party, not to sentence the innocent party to a life of loneliness and misery. Meaning that if an adulterer was put to death, obviously the widow or widower was free to remarry. And since divorce replaced the death penalty, then remarriage is still the assumed outcome of the divorce. So divorce replaced the death penalty, assuming remarriage. Let me give you a second fact. The exception clauses of Matthew 5 and 19 cannot be said to govern only divorce but not remarriage. What are the exception clauses? We've been here a dozen times. Matthew 5 and 19, where Jesus condemns condemns divorce except for sexual immorality. That's the one exception he gives in that context. There, There are other exceptions. But there's nothing in that teaching that Jesus is giving this blanket prohibition against remarriage. To have a no remarriage view is bringing a presupposition, bringing an assumption to those texts of Matthew 5, 31, 32, and then Matthew 19, uh, 3 through 10. It's bringing the presupposition that marriage is an unbreakable union, that it is an unbreakable covenant. And we've already established that it's not an unbreakable covenant. It can't be because if the exception clauses of Matthew 5 and 19 aren't governing remarriage also, that puts Jesus contradicting himself or contradicting scripture rather from Deuteronomy 24, which does allow for divorce. Now, somebody might say, but what about the the phrase that Jesus gives? Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery in Matthew 5.32. We'll talk about that in a moment. Let me give you another fact about remarriage. This is more of a historical fact. Legitimate divorce in Scripture and in Bible times carries the automatic assumption of legitimate remarriage. It's automatic. This is simply historical fact. You you can argue whether you agree with it or not. That's just simply a fact. A biblical historian by the name of William Heth, he explains this, quote, simple separation without the possibility of remarriage was unheard of in both Jewish marriage law and Roman marriage law. The whole purpose of obtaining a divorce was to be freed up to remarry. That was the whole purpose. That's just a historical fact. 
Here's a fourth reason. In fact, I want to ask you to turn here to Deuteronomy 24. It's a long passage, and rather than me trying to explain it to you, and you remember what I say, it'll be easier just to look at the text. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. And the fourth fact is Deuteronomy 24 does not condemn remarriage. It does not condemn remarriage. Let me read this text to you. We've, we've been through it in detail, but I'm just touching back on it. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, even then, if then, rather, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found out some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. So first of all, as I explained in detail a number of weeks ago, the reason for divorce is pointedly and purposefully vague. Uh, all kinds of arguments about what some indecency is and none of them really are are viable to be in the lead ahead of others. Jesus did confirm, though, that in fact it was often the woman being sent away who was actually the innocent party. He confirmed this in Matthew 19, that no inde- that some indecency was the great argument between the Hillel school of thought and the Shammai school of thought, and there was a different emphasis from each of them, and they were both wrong. Now, verse 2 assumes remarriage that if she goes out obviously she's going to become another man's wife that's the whole purpose that's the whole point why why can we say this because to be a single woman in this culture wasn't really an option there was no job to go get there was no career to pursue you needed a husband and so remarriage is obviously assumed but we get some concern in verse four Then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. There's no consensus or agreement on what being defiled means. It's the same idea of being defiled just in everyday life and needing to clean up before uh, coming to worship. But I want to point something out here because this is often taken as a condemnation of remarriage that she's been defiled because she remarried. That's not what the text says in Hebrew. The verb defiled herself is what's called a reflexive verb. It means that she has been made to defile herself. She has been forced into a situation that she didn't ask for. How? By being shamed and put away by her first husband, likely for an unjust cause. What it does not say for certain is that remarriage itself has defiled her. The text does not say that. And in fact, the reflexive nature of the verb would say it's not saying that at all, saying just the opposite. Now, neither is the reason that the first husband can't take her back clearly stated. There's no general consensus about that. Here's the basic situation. First husband gets rid of the wife. She marries somebody else. For whatever reason, either death or divorce, she's now free again. She can't go back to husband number one. There's no consensus on why that is. The the most agreement there is is that there's some sort of financial reason that he can't take advantage of her financially. But again, there's nothing to say that remarriage itself is the problem. 
It's not a blanket condemnation of remarriage. Let me give you a fifth fact. And you can go back to Romans. We'll be there shortly. But uh, a fifth fact is from Matthew 5.32. You do not have to turn there. Jesus' statement in Matthew 5.32 is not a condemnation of remarriage. It's not. I'll just read that to you as you're going back to Romans. Matthew 5.31-32, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Here's the phrase that is taken sometimes as a condemnation of remarriage. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, I established in pretty clear detail that Jesus is not handing down a law about marrying a divorced woman. That's not his purpose here. But we'll talk about that more in a moment. He's explaining the natural consequences of the sin of wicked men who put away their wives for selfish, immoral reasons. And he's using the literary teaching device of hyperbole, of exaggeration to make a point. And we saw that in previous verses. But the easiest way to know that Jesus is not condemning remarriage is that if he does condemn remarriage, now he's contradicting Scripture, contradicting Deuteronomy 24, which we just looked at, which does not condemn remarriage at all. It assumes it. So he is never going to find himself in the position to contradict Scripture. So it's not a condemnation of remarriage. Here's a sixth fact. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11 is not a blanket condemnation of remarriage. And we, we've been here. I'll just read it to you. 1 Corinthians seven ten to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Okay, context, context, context. To whom is Paul speaking? He's speaking to two believers who are married and one or more of them persist in ending the marriage. Paul is condemning remarriage when you still have a believing spouse. But not a believing spouse, not just someone who says, I'm a Christian, but someone who is following Christ, who has not been shown to be unrepentant as an adulterer or an abandoner. Remember the context. The Corinthians were new believers and many of them had come out of these pagan cults in which sexual immorality was a way that they expressed their faith in this pagan deity. And so for them being married, it kind of felt like they were going back to that. Well, wait a minute, we have sexual union in marriage and that's kind of what we did as, as cultists. And so many of them apparently were separating for the sake of holiness. And Paul's saying, no, don't do that. It's not a blanket condemnation of remarriage. It's a condemnation against remarriage when you have two Christians who can still reconcile, where where the marriage is still verifiably uh, able to come back together. Neither one has remarried. In other words, if reconciliation is still possible, that must be the course of action for the sake of the name of Christ. In fact, in verse 12 of chapter 7, Paul says, to the rest I say, meaning... Believers not in that situation. And he goes on to describe a very, very different situation. The believer married to the unbeliever. Two different situations. So you can't use 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11 as a blanket condemnation of remarriage because it's about one specific situation. Two believers who are denigrating the name of Christ by not coming back together. Here's a seventh fact. Four verses later, 1 Corinthians 7.15 can't be used as a blanket condemnation of remarriage. We've been here extensively. 
But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. And that word is carizo, divorce, if he separates. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Not enslaved. What does that mean? Well, if you take this to mean not enslaved to the marriage, but still unable to remarry, then not enslaved hasn't really happened. You're still enslaved. And you're fighting the uphill battle that in Paul's cultural context, as I've already mentioned, divorce comes with the implicit uh, assumption of remarriage, that that's there. So you can't use 7.15 of 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 15 rather, as a blanket condemnation of remarriage. And let me give you one more. This is one I want to look at. Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, 2, and 3 cannot be used as a blanket condemnation of remarriage. I've gone over these two verses uh, twice now, but they bear revisiting. Romans 7, verse 2, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while she lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is freed from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, we've said before that the primary purpose of this passage, those two verses, is to, it uses the allusion to, uh, to marriage to illustrate the principle in verse 1, that the law of Moses binds the living. And so this is meant to be understood in the context of all four verses. Verse 1, or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Then you get the illustration in verses 2 and 3. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, that you, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. This is a very obvious uh, structure here. Verse two illustrates verse one and verse three illustrates verse four. And so it's a soteriological statement. The purpose of those four verses is not to give a comprehensive theology on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, or adultery, or any sort of definitive legislation. It's just simply that as the death of a marriage partner ends the marriage bond, the death of Christ ends the bonds of sin. That's the point of the four verses with a brilliant illustration from marriage. The text is explaining an element of soteriology, not marriage and divorce in its totality. Verses 2 and 3 act as illustrations. What's the illustration? Like the death of a husband releases a wife from that bond, the death of Christ severs the relationship with the law. And so it's, it's illustrative. Now, I want to be really, really clear about this, though, on two points. First of all, the primary purpose of a given passage matters. It matters. That is a, that's a basic and vital tenet of a, an historical, a grammatical historical hermeneutic. And we can draw doctrinal conclusions from multiple areas in Scripture. We stay to the primary thrust of the passage. That's the number one point of the passage. If you don't do this, what happens to your Bible study method? Ultimately, the Bible gets reduced down to a series of proof texts. That's all it is. That how many verses do you have to prove your point? And let's count how many verses I have to prove my point. Whoever gets the most verses is right. That's the ultimate logical conclusion if we reduce scripture to proof text without worrying about what the primary purpose of a passage to make the primary purpose of Romans 7 2 and 3 to be Paul's explanation of marriage is to take it out of context so we want to be clear about that however just because the primary purpose of a passage 
is not to be a comprehensive theology of marriage, divorce, and adultery. It doesn't mean that every single thing it says about those topics isn't absolutely true. We would never say that. We would never say that verses two and three don't matter since they're in the context of a soteriological argument. They do matter. So even if we take it out of the context, let's just rip it out of the context completely, like as if it's not even in Romans 7. It doesn't mean it contradicts any other teaching in Scripture. We would never say that. The the meaning doesn't change. So if we look at it, is verse 2 a problem at any level? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage? Nobody has a problem with that. That's the, that's the, the, the uh, uh, tenet that says that if your spouse passes away, then you're free to remarry. What about verse 3? Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. Everybody would agree with that. But if her husband dies, she is freed from that law. She marries another man. She's not an adulteress. We would agree with that. But it can't be taken as a blanket statement against remarriage. Let me tell you the, the, the problem that happens here. It is a blanket statement against taking up with another man while you're still married. That harmonizes perfectly with the exception clauses of Matthew 5 and 19, places her in the role of a truly unrepentant adulteress. The second half of verse 3 is contrasting to the first half. If she takes up with a man while she's married, she's an adulteress. But if she marries the same man after her husband dies, she's free to do so. But here's what happens. Here's the problem that arises from this. And, and I've seen this question a number of times. That those who take a remarriage view add a little spin into this text. There's, there's no bad intentions. It's inadvertent. It's probably very well-meaning, but we are eisegeting, meaning reading into the text something that's not there. What is it that we read in that's not there? Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. What gets read into that that's not there? that the definition of husband is the man she married regardless of whether they're divorced or still married. That it also means her ex-husband. Is that there? It is not in the text. I think scripture is perfectly capable of making that distinction. In fact, scripture does make that distinction. The verse we read in Deuteronomy 24 verse 4, the man to whom a woman used to be married is called her former husband not her husband. And so to put in that assumption while her husband or ex-husband is alive is to add something to Scripture based on my own conviction, not based on what's actually in the text. The text is speaking of a woman who is married, speaking of a woman then who is a widow, the situation of taking up with another man while her husband is alive. There's nothing in the text which prohibits remarriage and doesn't even speak about remarriage after divorce. That's not the subject of the discussion. And by the way, because we want to remain uh, with the continuity of Scripture, if we add in the fact that this is somehow also talking about divorce and remarriage in any situation, including a divorce situation, we've now blown the whole point of the illustration. If you change the illustration, now you change the point of verse 1 and verse 4. So it can't be talking about things that aren't there. What's the point of the illustration? Like the death of a husband releases the wife from that bond, the death of Christ severs the relationship with the law. Doesn't speak to divorce or remarriage one way or another in a divorce situation. It just doesn't. So that's what 
Scripture says, and that's a, that's a really fast version, but I, I feel like it's imperative to make a couple of applicational conclusions, to not just take these facts in. And I want to give you two of them. First of all, there's definitely room for disagreement on the topic of remarriage. There's room for that. I think the case is fairly airtight, but someone else might not think so. But there is something we can say with certainty. There is no specific blanket declaration against remarriage in Scripture. It just doesn't exist. It's not there. And certainly there's nothing with which we can declare some sort of total prohibition. We can't make a rule about this. So if you can't make a rule about something from Romans 14, what do you do? It becomes a matter of conscience. But it's not a matter in which we can kind of lord this over another and condemn any and every remarriage. It's a matter for your conscience not to apply to everyone else. So yes, there's room for disagreement. There is no room to make a rule on this. And so we don't want to do that. So what if you really feel very, very strongly about this, that the Bible does not allow for remarriage? Well, that's my second application. If you adamantly believe in your heart, in your conscience, after studying all the passages that I've gone through, you come to a different conclusion that Scripture does not allow for remarriage, it's still a matter of conscience. So what do you do with that? Then you should never remarry because that's against your conscience. You would never do that. I've, I, I, I've known a woman many years ago who uh, at that time she was uh, a couple decades older than I was and she didn't believe in remarriage. She had never been married and she began seeing this wonderful Christian man and about three or four dates into their relationship he, he told her that he had been divorced. His first wife had committed adultery and had, ran away, had run away with another man and with great sadness because she didn't believe in remarriage it would have violated her conscience she broke off that relationship she said I'm sorry I cannot be with you she is single to this day now in her 60s and she's fine with that because that was her decision for her conscience so if you adamantly believe that scripture does not allow for remarriage then you should never remarry so that's a real simple concept there now if you think that all of that is muddy let me drop a plane load of mud onto this situation Let's do the next part of our plan. I want to deal with a real situation which occurs in the church and answer the question, who is an adulterer? More specifically, can a believer who's committed adultery and repented remarry? Can they do that? The standard answer in the church of Jesus Christ is no. Are you kidding me? That, that makes no sense at all. Well, let's examine it. Let's start with the easy part. A person who has committed adultery continues to do so, continues to be unrepentant, probably isn't a believer to begin with, so our authority over that person is really limited to one thing. If they have named the name of Christ, if they have presented themselves as a Christian, 1 Corinthians 5.11 gives us one instruction, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. That's a tough thing. And remember, that's not, and Paul, in fact, he clarifies this. He's not saying everyone on the planet who suffers those sins. He's saying the one who has openly named the name of Christ and yet continues in those sins. He says, don't even fellowship with them because they're denigrating the name of Christ. So that, that's the easy part. By the way, in chapter six of 1 Corinthians, it says that those who continue rebelliously and unrepentantly in those behaviors, they won't inherit the kingdom. They're not believers. So what is an adulterer? Who gets to have that label? Is it cheap grace? Is it free grace 
to relieve the believer of the label of adulterer. It is the tendency of the evangelical church to teach once an adulterer, always an adulterer. That is the default position that we have. We demonstrate that practically speaking in a prohibition against the believer has committed adultery and lost his or her marriage. We, we, we prohibit remarriage. I'm not going to deal with the issue of a church leader who does that. We'll deal with that during our Q&A next week. But what about the believer who has lost his marriage as a result of adultery, but has genuinely repented in some sort of observable process that, that the church can see? Or maybe he's repented because of the divorce even, that he's finally come around. Well, I want to urge you as believers in Christ to at least consider that the repentant person who has committed adultery and lost his marriage as a result does not result in an automatic prohibition against remarriage. Just consider it. And this is going to be a matter of conscience for you, so you personally act according to your conscience, but we're not going to impose our consciences on others. I want to give you six reasons to consider this and then one little bonus reason at the end, and then we'll be done. You can reach your own conclusions. Don't condemn somebody for reaching a conclusion different from yours. Here's the first reason we should consider that the repentant adulterer can remarry. First one, adultery in remarriage spoken of by Jesus is not a judicial condemnation. And we've already talked about this. It's not a judicial condemnation. I've already pointed out when we've been in Matthew 5 multiple times that when Jesus said, whoever divorces his wife makes her commit adultery, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery, he's not giving legislation. He's not making a law. What he is doing is pointing out the fact that the divorced woman is being treated as if she committed adultery. And I went through the three options that a divorced woman had in Jesus' culture. And none of them were good, and they all made her look bad. Now, I made the case for the exaggerated hyperbole of that passage, which includes Jesus illustrating uh, plucking out a sinful eye, things like that. It, the passage doesn't directly address remarriage or the lack or the right of remarriage of the one who did commit adultery, I just want to point out that you can't use Matthew 5.32 to say you can't be remarried because remarriage creates more adultery. He was not making a law. He was pointing out a reality. Author named Barbara Roberts, who's written very intelligently on this topic, she asks hypothetically, is adultery by remarriage once or continual? In other words, when Jesus references committing adultery by remarriage, does that place a person in a perpetual state of adultery? Now you start getting into all kinds of soteriological problems that, that almost make you more Catholic than Protestant. And so we want to be careful there. The adultery and remarriage spoken of by Jesus is not a judicial law. It's not a condemnation. It's not a new rule. Here's a second reason. An adulterer is by definition unrepentant. Is by definition unrepentant. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 teaches that adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Adulterers are included with other unrepentant believers, sexually immoral, idolaters, homosexuals, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. Verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6 explains that the change that takes place in the life of the Christian makes them different, and such were some of you. You used to be that, but now you're not. An adulterer is defined as an unrepentant unbeliever. Jim Neuheiser in his book 
on marriage, divorce, and remarriage defines adultery, quote, as unrepentant spousal adultery. John MacArthur explains that adultery is, quote, a condition where adultery is prolonged, the sinning spouse is unrepentant, making reconciliation and the normal marriage relationship impossible. The, the true adulterer is the spouse who insists on continued adultery or insists on the divorce for selfish reasons. So there's clearly a difference between the spouse who commits adultery and repents truly and the one who just insists on the continued sin. Here's a third reason, and this is really my number one reason, but it's not in order of importance. Third reason, forbidding remarriage for repentant adultery is soteriologically inconsistent. I'm sorry to use a big word, but, but we need to say it. Forbidding remarriage for repentant adultery is soteriologically, study of salvation, inconsistent. And it makes us stand on some really, really shaky ground. In some situations, one spouse may commit adultery either in a one-time act or even in a prolonged extramarital relationship. They become convicted of the sinfulness of this action. They, they repent by breaking off the relationship completely, doing everything possible to humbly trust, uh, earn the trust of his spouse again, and yet the offended spouse takes the divorce option, choosing not to continue the marriage. Me personally, as a, as a pastor, as, as one who has received the grace of God through the cross of Christ, I would hope that in almost every case, the offended Christian spouse would reflect the forgiveness given to her in Christ and would work to forgive and restore the marriage. But the reality is, this is just the reality we live in, that the offended spouse may be so hurt, so offended, and, and maybe she doesn't hold bitterness or unforgiveness in her heart, but she feels she cannot continue the marriage. She cannot restore trust in the offending spouse. That is a matter between her and the Lord. I personally think the believer in Christ has the capacity to forgive infinitely because we've been given infinite forgiveness, but you can't force that. You can only hope for it. You can only pray for it. You can only counsel towards it. So a situation arises in which a believer has committed adultery, has repented either before the loss of his marriage or after the loss of his marriage, and now finds himself condemned by church leadership, given an edict, you cannot remarry. If you've never been a part of that situation, I've seen it. And this happens. An elder board, or, or if you're in the Baptist tradition, a deacon board or whatever will say, you are an adulterer, you can never remarry. We, we believe you're still saved, but you can never remarry because you are now an adulterer. But is that consistent with the doctrines of grace? And is it consistent with our understanding of soteriology? I don't think it is. I think it's soteriologically inconsistent. And it places the church in the unique, interesting, and uncalled for position of giving penance. Where do we get penance? That is a Catholic idea. In, the, in this case, a lifetime of being alone to the unrepentant adulterer. Now, Here's the old argument, and I'm going to address this some next week in the Q&A. The old argument is, well, the Lord asks us to suffer all kinds of things, cancer or financial difficulties or uh, you know, a, a limb being amputated, a horrible accident, loss of job. He asks us to endure these things. What's the difference? None of those things are imposed artificially by the church. How would you feel if you used your hand to do horrible, sinful things, and then you repented, and the church said, well, you can never use that hand again. We're going to cut it off because Jesus said that's what you do when your right hand offends you. We would say that's crazy. And yet with adultery, we do that. 
Some sins have natural consequences. They're, they're imposed by life. They're imposed by God. Uh, extended drug use will cause health problems. Illicit sexual immorality may bring disease. But for the church to impose a sanction against the remarriage of a, of a repentant adulterer is to define that person as categorically unforgivable and to impose artificial consequences. Does that make sense? It's to make a judgment that the cross cannot cover this quite as much as it covers something else. Barbara, Robert points out, Barbara Roberts points out that, quote, if we forbid remarriage to all those divorced for adultery, it implies that a person guilty of adultery can never be forgiven. But if we really believe 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, then they should, we should be equally able to understand that it's not the job of the church to impose lifetime consequences on a person. Whose job is that? That's the Lord's job. Can he impose lifetime consequences? Yes, and I have found he really doesn't need our help to do that. He's really good at it. Hebrews 12 verse 6 says this. That's God's domain. He gives discipline. Doesn't mean we don't discipline the unrepentant within our ranks, but we don't discipline them with a lifetime sanction of any kind. Now, it may be that the offending divorced person, there are some natural consequences. Maybe he can never find another spouse willing to trust him after having violated his previous marriage. Uh, this woman I told you about that I knew, this, this man was devastated because he was divorced and she had a, a stance against remarriage and it devastated him. That was a natural consequence of what happened in his life. It may be that the offending person, the one who's committed adultery, just can't shake that reputation and has to relocate and lose relationships even to start life afresh. In other words, there's plenty of natural consequences to adultery without the church imposing even more. There's plenty of them. There's the fact that you will have to explain this to your children someday, that they will have to know what you did. All kinds of natural consequences. But here's, I think, the, the nail in this argument for me. I gave you that list of all the things that, that equal an unrepentant unbeliever, the sexually immoral, the adulterer, the reviler, the swindler, in another text, the liar. If a believer who's committed adultery and repented is treated for life as a second-class Christian, then every one of you who have ever found yourself on that list at one time, you have to retain those labels for life. Don't raise your hand, but have any of you here ever stolen anything? If you have and you've repented, according to that logic, you must retain the label swindler for the rest of your life. That is not soteriologically inconsistent. In fact, it's the cross of Jesus Christ which removes those labels from us. Let me give you another reason. 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11 can't be used to prohibit remarriage after adultery. I've already visited that and I won't take a lot of time on this, but it says, uh, the one, th this is the one dealing with two believers. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. You can't use that to prohibit remarriage after adultery. And it's a big one that's used for that. I've already pointed this out, that it's a command to a believer who's left a believing spouse for an illegitimate reason. And so Paul commands that those 
in that situation to seek reconciliation. And if you won't do it, then you can't get remarried. It's not a general prohibition against remarriage. It's just saying there's still an option of reconciliation. Don't blow that. Don't blow that. Obviously, if the original marriage can be saved, all patient efforts toward that end have to be the first priority. So those verses don't cover a situation obviously, in which reconciliation has become impossible or or improbable. If the offended spouse who divorced uh, for the adultery of her husband, for example, has remarried already, reconciliation of the original marriage becomes impossible. And so, practically speaking, then, then it can't move forward. Or if the offended divorced spouse just refuses all reasonable, all patient efforts at reconciliation by the offending spouse, then the conscience of the offending spouse is now satisfied. They can move on, but it's not a prohibition of remarriage after adultery. It can't be taken to be that. Let me give you a fifth reason. This is a weaker reason, but it's not, it's not entirely uh, illegitimate either. Actually enforcing a never-marry edict is impractical. Actually enforcing a never-marry edict is impractical. Now, let, let's just talk about this philosophically for, for a moment. It's never okay, it's never wise, it's never prudent to form our theology from experience. That's never wise to do. But that also, that doesn't mean that that negates the practical nature of testing our theology with experience. Now, let me give you an example that we do test our theology with experience. In 2014, a Pentecostal pastor fully believing the infamous promise in the contested conclusion in Mark's gospel, quote, they will pick up servants with their hands and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Mark 16, verse 18. He lived out his theology and he suffered the consequences. His name was Jamie Coots. He was the pastor of the full gospel tabernacle in Jesus' name of Middlesboro, Kentucky, and he died from a rattlesnake bite inflicted during a worship service. Now, the legitimacy of Mark 16, verse 18 as actually being part of Scripture. Put that aside for a moment. The principle remains that we use Scripture to form our theology, but our experience should have some voice in testing our theology. Now, let's assume just for a minute that Mark 16, verse 18 is a legitimate part of Scripture. I've taught before that it's not, but let's assume that it is. You would say, hmm, this makes, this is interesting. I don't recall in anywhere else in Scripture that it's for us to risk our lives in the middle of a worship service. I don't recall that. So we test our experience. Jamie Coots, his death should give rise to a reevaluation of Mark 16, verse 18. Now, in that case, it's easy. It's not part of Scripture, so that makes it really easy. But the impractical nature of a never remarry edict by a local church it should give rise to a reevaluation of using Matthew 5, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7 as this somehow of a lifetime decree against a repentant, forgiven adulterer from ever remarrying. And let me just put together kind of a hypothetical situation for you. And this, these are based on real situations. I just kind of married a few of them together. 35-year-old married Christian man has been unfaithful to his wife. In fact, he maintained an adulterous affair for a couple of years. He was caught. He met several times with their pastor. The husband demonstrated clear, obvious evidence of broken repentance and lifestyle changes. He cut off his relationship. He did anything and everything that was asked of him. But his wife, she believed that her husband was truly repentant, but she also believed in her conscience that he had irreparably broken the marriage covenant, according to Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. 
She didn't hold her husband's sin against him as unforgivable, but she was neither, neither was she able to extend trust to him any longer. And so despite this man pleading and hoping to restore the marriage, she divorced him anyway. And so the five elders of their church decreed to him that because he has committed adultery, according to Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7, that he is never to remarry, that he is committed to a life of singleness from here on out. So initially, the man is fine with this. And again, these are based on putting together some stories I'm personally aware of. He's fine with this. In fact, there's, there's kind of this feeling of relief that a little child has when they get spanked. That I'm, I'm glad that's over. I'm glad that I'm, I'm kind of getting punished for this. But five years later, only two of the original five elders remain. New leadership has transitioned over time. A year after that, the pastor who did the original counseling is called to a new ministry. And a year after that, the man is transferred to a different state by his company. Now he's 42 years old. He finds a good church in the new city. He joins the singles group. He's a little older than most of them, but he joins the singles group. And he hits it off with a 39-year-old woman in the group, and they began seeing each other casually. He wants to do the right thing, and so very, very uncomfortably, he tells his entire story to her, including his adulterous affair in all of its sordid detail. And to his surprise, her immediate response is that if Christ has forgiven you, then I forgive you, and I will never speak of it again. And so for six months, their friendship develops into a, really a great affection. Both of them enjoying the companionship of the other. They're both lonely. They both sense a need for a, a human partner in life. By now, there's only one original elder from the man's previous church that's left in leadership. His former wife remarried years earlier. And there's literally no one left realistically to hold him accountable to that original edict of, of no remarriage. And to make things worse, his current pastor and current church leadership have declared that they view him as forgiven. And after investigating how he handled his repentance, they conclude that his repentance was genuine. They encourage the couple to get married, to redeem what's left of their lives together in Christ and to enjoy that blessing of marriage. So ultimately, the couple has to examine their own consciences. They have to make a decision they feel would be honoring to the Lord. Now, to be fair, the man could in fact decide that what he did was so wicked that he cannot in good conscience ever remarry. He has the right to make that decision. He might be like the repentant drunkard who makes a decision that I can never drive within one mile of a liquor store for the rest of my life. I can't do it. Or he might decide that he's been broken under the discipline of the Lord and continuing unmarried would only be a form of penance in which he feels he's being asked to pay for his sins rather than Christ paying for them. In either case, it becomes a matter of conscience. But do you see how, practically speaking, enforcing a no remarriage edict really is almost impossible? Theology is not formed by our experience, it's not formed by pragmatism, but it is reasonable to test it with our experience, like the real-life experience of snake handlers, by experience to see that a certain position or a stance does not in reality work in the day-to-day -day world in which we live. One of the authors in which I read extensively on this whole topic changed his mind on the whole area of divorce and remarriage based on the fact that his exegesis of scripture kept leading him to be cruel to his fellow believers and he said that can't be right he re-examined his exegesis and found that it was lacking and he did a better job i would assert that it's impractical and it's cruel to impose a lifetime sanction that is unenforceable and has no redeeming soteriological value at all I want to give you a sixth reason and then a bonus reason. The sixth reason, it's not 
it's not the best one, but it's my favorite one. God blessed at least one marriage of a man caught in adultery. God blessed at least one marriage of a man caught in adultery. Now, there's a memorable hermeneutic adage that description is not prescription, that just because the the apostles uh, saw tongues of fire over people's heads doesn't mean that that's what we're looking for. That rightly explains the Bible study fallacy of taking one incident in Scripture that may be exceptional in nature and creating a rule of life from that exception. But neither do we ignore clear examples from Scripture that might poke a hole in my theological argument. So we can't ignore that. For those who conscientiously hold the view that a person who has committed adultery can never remarry and will never again have the blessing of God on a marriage, I would encourage us to think about the story of David and Bathsheba. 2 Samuel 11 and 12 causes some problems for the no remarriage after adultery view. Everyone would agree that David was in horrible sin by his illicit affair with Bathsheba, not to mention murdering her husband. I mean, mean, that's just piling on there. And by the standards often imposed by the church today, what would we counsel David? You have to break off all relations with Bathsheba. You can never marry again. Complicated for David. He already had a few wives. That's a whole different issue. Was David disciplined? for that did he suffer yes he committed adultery with Bathsheba and like it or not and how horrific that sin is there was a little baby conceived in that union and David was severely disciplined because God took that baby from him and he killed him because God does not approve of that but neither can we say that God continued to disapprove of their eventual marriage. Bathsheba would become the mother of Solomon, the Messiah-like king of Israel. Alan Ross, arguably one of the greatest scholars in Psalms in church history, he points out that the name, and you have to follow my logic here, the name, His Beloved, from Psalm 127, verse 2, it reflects the name that God gave Solomon, Jedidiah. It's the same Hebrew word, his beloved, Jedediah. It's the same Hebrew word. God gave Solomon the name Jedediah, his beloved in 2 Samuel 12, verse 25. Alan Ross says this, that this name was given, quote, as a sign that God had completely forgiven David and Bathsheba and would bless their marriage. God never calls anybody beloved that's a result of a sinful union. As a matter of fact, David wasn't the only adulterer in that picture. Bathsheba was an adulteress. And Bathsheba is arguably the author of Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, our Bible's greatest portrait of a godly woman. That's grace. That's amazing grace. Let me give you one bonus reason that I'm urging Christians to consider that the repentant person who's committed adultery lost his marriage as a result does not automatically result in prohibition against remarriage. This is just a bonus reason. I would argue, and I argued this when we began our series, that marriage is a gift given by God to mankind, to humankind. Marriage is not a gift given to the institution of the church to dole out as we see fit. People can get married because that's a gift from God. When someone says to me as a pastor, did you approve of this marriage or did you approve of this remarriage? My answer generally is, it's not my place to approve or disapprove of it in the first place. It's not my place. Again, absolutely, a remarriage can be verifiably sinful. A man leaving his spouse to remarry. 
but it's not the place of the church to approve of marriage. Now, I might not want to participate in the wedding, but it's not our place to approve or disapprove of marriage and even remarriage. And I am never going to put myself in the place of imposing Catholic penance on somebody for a sin that Jesus covered at the cross. We're not going to do that. My sadness at ending this series is that uh, the admonitions that are so clear and so important uh, will end as well. Let me just give you three. Please defend marriage. Please defend marriage. Better to live in a marriage that makes you miserable to the glory of God than to think that you can somehow fulfill a fantasy by moving on and moving on and moving on. Statistically, if you take that option, you're going to take it more than once. And you do it enough times, you're going to prove yourself to be an unbeliever. Live in a situation that's not ideal for the glory of God. Let that be okay. Defend marriage. Second admonition, be gracious. Be gracious. I mean, even in our own church, we have people with a past that I'm aware of, and there are people with a past that I'm not aware of. I'm always shocked when somebody says, yeah, this is actually my third marriage. Oh, well, you just look like a a normal married couple to me. Be gracious. You weren't there. You don't know the situation. You don't know what actually went on. You don't know the anguish that it takes to make that horrible decision. You don't know the anguish that it takes to understand that maybe you made the wrong decision and now it's too late. Those are horrific things to have to walk through. Be gracious and understand that the, that the ground at the foot of the cross is level and that we all stand condemned to one degree or another. And then third, my admonition to you is be patient. Be patient. I was telling Darren that uh, this series has been like uncovering rocks in the desert where roaches and scorpions are crawling out and we're discovering sin all over the place and seeing things. Be patient. There are no perfect married couples. Be patient with one another as those who are married. Be patient with other marriages. Don't expect them to follow suit with you. If you have a, a really quiet, timid personality in your marriage and the only, the only argument you ever get into is that you go, hmm, on occasion. <laughs> Don't judge the ones that are Italian and they... They decide disagreements at the top of their lungs. Doesn't mean that they're wrong, that they're, they're just different. Be patient. Be patient with all those that you may think ought to have perfect marriages. Be patient with the marriages of your leadership. Understand that we have the same struggles you do. And so if I could leave you with anything, defend marriage, be gracious, and be patient. I hope that will impact your hearts. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to have studied this topic and I'm hopeful, Lord, that some good will come out of it. I'm hopeful that all of us who are married would have a healthy fear of ever disregarding our spouses, disregarding the fact that marriage is not an unbreakable covenant. It can break. And we ought to have a healthy fear of that. It's my prayer that husbands would stop being dictators and stop declaring themselves the, the divine sovereigns of their house and yet, and instead be the chief servants, the gentle ones, the kind ones, the protecting ones, the ones that make their wives feel safe and loved. It's my prayer that wives would love you so much that they understand that respecting their husbands and having a gentle and quiet spirit is so pleasing to you. It is so honoring to you. 
And it's my prayer that both husbands and wives would understand that they have a further responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ to confront sin and to be a sanctifying influence on the other. And that that must go both ways, that wives have every right to confront their husbands as brothers in Christ with their sin and that the job of a man at that point is to be quiet and to listen to the corrective of his wife. Lord, I pray for those who are here who are struggling either directly or indirectly with a divorce or potential divorce situation, Lord. I pray for grace and for patience and for mercy. I pray for those among us who maybe are remarried or or have been divorced and have sensed the condemnation of the church. I pray that the cross of Christ would be such an encouragement to them that their sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west. They've been sunk to the bottom of the sea. They've been trampled on by the cross. And that those sins will be remembered no more. And I pray for those who counsel with others that we would be patient, that we would be directly confrontational of clear, obvious sin, but we would be understanding that we're dealing with sinners and we're dealing with difficulties that sometimes we can't fully understand. Help us, Lord, to be those who can come alongside those who are hurting, to call them to repentance, call them to righteousness, call them to holiness, and yet hold their hand as they fall, as they struggle. And I just generally speaking, pray for the marriages at Grace Bible Church, Lord, that we would we would sing your praises and your wisdom of marriage, that we wouldn't just have marriages that endure, but that marriages that thrive that reflect the love that Christ has for the church and the love that the church has for Christ and that we would fall in love each and every day on purpose regardless of how we feel husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church and wives honoring their husbands and loving them and cherishing them so that we might have marriages and thus might have families that accurately reflect that Jesus Christ does change our lives and that we might have a witness that the world can see and that we can be proud of as accurately representing our Lord Jesus. We pray these things all for his sake, all for his glory. Amen.